Good morning and welcome to this month's The New PL Business Book Review Club. I'm very grateful you've taken the time to join us today. The New PL Monthly Business Book Review Club is sponsored by the Carroll Consultancy Group, who are focused on dramatically developing people, performance, and profits. So if you want to accelerate your business growth in 2021, go to carrollconsultancy.com or connect via the links in the notes that accompany this podcast. We believe business needs a new PL, one that is as much focused on principles and leadership as it is on profit and loss, because we know if your principles are right and aligned with your purpose, and your leadership has a clear vision and focus and strength and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. Today's the new PL Business Book Review Club guest is the phenomenal Jamie Mustard. Jamie is a strategic multimedia consultant artist, designer, product futurist, and iconist. He has codified the primal laws of what causes anything in any medium to stand out and to take hold in the human mind. Jamie is resident iconist and staff writer at Forbes Ignite, the social innovation magazine, and his passion is to teach the science and the art of obviousness, helping professionals, change agents, artists, leaders and businesses to confidently make their messages and ideas stand out to their desired audiences. And today on the new PL Monthly Business Book Review Club, we are discussing with Jamie his breakout work, The Iconist, The Art and Science of Standing Out. So, Jamie, a very warm welcome to the new PL. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I feel privileged that you're having me. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it'd be great to start the conversation just with you giving listeners a bit of an overview of who you are, what you do, and you, who you do it for? It's a good question. You know, um, I will, I have a, an incredible story. I was a kid of abandonment and neglect that grew up on the streets uh, east of Hollywood, East Los Angeles. Uh, severe poverty, slums, barely went to school. And uh, through a series of uh, fortunate events, uh, I was a semi-literate into my late teens. Uh, and then I ended up uh, going to and getting a degree from the London School of Economics. And so I, uh, and, but, you know, I guess you could mark my childhood with the one word I would use to describe it is invisible. Mm -hmm. uh, so my work now is I believe that the invisibility, I mean, I, I was a brown kid that faded into the brick in the hot sun of, you know, 70s and 80s Los Angeles. And I, and I guess you could say the crux of my work is that I believe that, uh, the invisibility that I experienced as a child of, you know, uh, is everyone is experiencing that invisibility now as a result of information overload. Yes. And I, I have, I have written a book that I would describe as a primal or Gladwellian laws that describe why we pay attention to one thing and ignore another. All of us in this world of too much of everything feel like we've become diluted because we have, we now compete with all that content and I can get into, we can talk about that. So what I do is for some of the biggest brands and leaders in the world and artists, um, they come to me when they have a particular thing uh, that, that they want to stand out and they're struggling with um, information overload. And I, and I apply these primal laws in the iconist uh, to, the, uh, to, uh, to them or their thing and we we make people we make them visible. How has your childhood experience? How has it shaped the the conversation you bring 
to those clients today because we all are clearly influenced by our childhood. We all shape our our beliefs and our systems when we're when we're young, when we're children and teenagers. How does the experiences you had as a child shape the conversation over and above the professional experience you bring to that conversation? It's a really great uh, it's a really great question, and you know I, I kind of maybe did much you know I kind of give an overview of you know that that situation, but. And that was a horrible situation uh, that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. But there were, sir, there were some things that were good. Okay, and one of those things is when I grew up in these neighborhoods that were so mixed in terms of culture. You had Koreatown, you had uh, well, they call it Little Armenia now, but you know you had Armenian neighborhoods, Mexican neighborhoods, uh, uh, and so you had this kind of soup of you know, Nicaraguans, Guatemalans, right? The soup of people. So I was kind of mushed in with all of these people. And um, I am very interested in how people move through the world. I think it made me kind of very understanding and curious about all the different ways that people can move through the world. So that when I get on one of these calls with a CEO of a billion dollar company, you know, my curiosity is like, how is this guy moving through the world? How are his decisions affecting all the people? I see it almost like another nation state or a culture or a neighborhood. What's that neighborhood going to be like? Yeah. And I'm intensely curious in that way. So why the iconist now? Why, why at this point in your career? I'd like to understand before we get into the, to the detail of the book, what was the background to the development of it? And why was it now? I mean, I've been beta. I've been working on this idea. The book came out about a year and a, almost two years ago. Uh, but it's you know, I'm I'm immersed in it. Um, uh, I've been beta testing and working with the idea uh, for almost 13, 14 years. Mm -hmm. So I was doing this with companies of and and artists and leaders from all over the world, um, traveling. I, I did some stuff in 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 England. Yes. Um, uh, and I I think that. Um, it's funny, you know, you, when I was, when I, when we sold the book and we're going through the publishing process, I really didn't want to look back at any about, you know, my childhood or where I came from. And I really wanted a disconnect. I wanted the work to be taken seriously. This is social science. It stands by itself. And I thought my story was a cheap device to get people to pay attention. Um, but at, so the introduction of the book was written at the end, which is where I kind of my, my, my publisher and my editor said, no, you, you got to share this. So, I mean, the question you're asking me is tricky because I didn't realize it at the time, but in the, in the, in the year and a half of the book coming out, I realized that every aspect of, uh, dealing with invisibility, uh, gave me a special way to see invisibility and to see it. Uh, a to see the solution and B to see the problem and the extent of the problem um, in a deeper way, maybe before or better than a lot of others. Yes. Yeah. But I would have, I would have denied if you had interviewed me two years ago, like when the book was coming out like a week after I would have said they have nothing to do with each other. You know, I don't, you know, it's, it's, but you know, at this point, I, you know, uh, uh, I relent. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I capitulate. Yeah. But yeah. 100%. Um, I think that, I have a sensitivity to what everyone is experiencing now. There's actual mental phenomena. I don't care if you're a CEO or a famous artist. If you have something you want to put out there and you don't feel like it's getting the traction that it deserves, there's actual mental manifestations that come from that. 
And that is directly result of mass information. And we could talk about how that onslaught of mass information, but I'm in, I'm in your hands, Mr. Is it Spires or Spears? Spires, yeah. Yep. Spires, I got it right the first time. Well done, right. well done. Yeah, thank you. Not many do. Um, <laughs> did you have an unexpected self-realization and journey into your, to the deepest depth of your mind through the development of the Iconist. You've talked about starting a business book or a, a book on the economics of attention and understanding blocks and, and iconography, but actually it sounds like you realized something about yourself in that process as well. And I wondered how you feel different as an individual to the Jamie that went into the writing of this book. Oh man, this is like getting touchy feely, Mr. Spires. <laughs> okay, like I don't. Am I? Can I go touchy feely here? I thought this was a business podcast. Am it I is, allowed but to? We're like... all humans. Okay. Uh, listen, you know, I carry. I dedicated the book uh, to my nine-year-old self and the angels that helped him along the way. Yes. Right. I shouldn't be here. So, um, I feel uh, that I. I think <laughs> I ever I, I I feel that I have a I feel that I God man I'm I'm never you you've got me here I've never said anything like this before I feel that I didn't fully come into myself mm -hmm. until the iconist as an expression and I uh, caused me to relax into myself yes in a way that I did not expect. Like, I feel like all the way up into the book, I've always been, I mean, I've been working with the biggest brands in the world long before the book came out, yeah. but it was like a fight. Once the book came out, it was like an exhale. Yes. I'm not fighting anymore. I'm just doing it. That's how I've, I've never had anybody ask me a question. I've never thought about it before. Now I'm just doing it. That's yeah. the best way. I'm not fighting for it. Yeah. Yeah. I can, uh, I can totally relate to that. And that's another conversation for another day. Um, I touched on the economics of attention a moment ago, and you set out um, in the book that you, you wanted to understand the patterns of iconic communication. Can you talk me through the patterns that you discovered and why they are important? Yeah, I mean, I think also, you know, kind of going back, and again, I've never said this in an interview before, but, you know, going back into, you know, me being in this, this uh, cultural poverty soup, there, in LA is a very strange place because there's signs in different languages everywhere. And I was always kind of fascinated by the signs, you know, just like, oh, there's a Korean sign. And it's just a hodgepodge of just cultural signs. And I think that also in getting out of that situation, I kind of, the way I did that is by reverse engineering uh, my poverty and reverse engineering poverty mindset and reverse engineer, I, I reverse engineer things and I kind of Houdini myself out and when you do that, you see patterns. Yeah. And then I was illiterate till I was semi-literate till I was 19. Uh, and then uh, I ended up at this, you know, social science school. And um, all of a sudden, this kind of fascination with patterns, just in terms of pop culture, uh, has a place you know, th there's economic patterns. And I just, I understood it in a very deep way because I lived it. Yeah. Okay. So it wasn't just something that was over there to me. It was like something that was raw, but I, to answer the question, I mean, um, economics of attention, here's how I would describe that when like a simple economics, one one simple supply and demand graph graph, when there's a high, when there's a, an, a ton of supply for something, the price goes down. 
yeah. right? The value goes down. When there's a scarcity, the price and the value go up. So let's look at, uh, let's talk about in that in terms of information. If I was walking around 1950, London, Europe, America, wherever, small town, uh, going to the grocery store, uh, going home, going to the office, um, coming home, watching telly, um, listening to the radio, I was subject to about 250 advertising messages a day. Mm. By 1970, that was, I was subject to about 500 advertising messages a day. By 1998, uh, the last time this was seriously studied, estimates that most human beings are subject to about five to 7,000 uh, advertising messages a day. And recent thought experiments say that it's probably right now we're all subject anywhere in the world to 10 to 15,000 advertising messages a day. A human being couldn't process a thousand. So what does that mean? So there's this oversupply of information. So we value it less. We rely on all this micro communication, but we also push it away and it's, we become numb to it. It's kind of like if I, um, so we don't value all this mass information that's coming at us. And then you as a business person or a person trying to find meaning in a business or a leader, um, you're trying to push out a message and the person that's at the receiving end is receiving it with very low value because just because of the sheer volume of information that comes at them. Yeah. And you can feel that, that you feel that as a base note, you as a leader, you as a person in an organization, you feel an anxiety that nobody's really listening to you because they're not. Yeah. Yeah. So central to that and central to the, the iconist and, it, and it's the concept that underpins it is blocks or blocking. Um, and I'd like to explain, I'd like to ask you to explain to the audience the primal rules that underpin or that set the foundation for blocks and blocking that that attempt that make the attempt to break through the the volume of information and the noise that's out there. Okay, so I'm going to give some cultural examples before we get into any business examples. And if you want, we can do business examples. Yep. But all a block is is a big monolithic thing that you repeat over and over that forces its way to become an icon of the mind of an intended audience, right? And I take it from what happens when you put a, a toy block in front of a baby, it's massive to them. Anything massive with an intricacy inside it will lock attention momentarily, mm -hmm. okay? An example of that would be road signs. When it's a matter of life and death, we always use this block concept to get yes. people to pay attention. There's billions and billions of road signs, yet they always work. They keep us from crashing into each other and they keep us from drinking poison. So the question is, is there something about the nature of a warning label or a road sign about the anatomy of that, that you can apply to every other aspect of life, music, art, business, entrepreneurship? And the answer is absolutely yes. There's something going on with a road sign that can be applied to anything. Mm -hmm. And I can give you an example that involves, it involves monolithic uh, uh, repetition. Yes. Right. So, so let's take a, like a cultural example and go, you know, uh, I think, what is it? August, 1963, uh, Martin Luther King's, I have a dream speech, which is the most famous speech in human history, even going into school, you know, in London, there'd be kids from Malaysia, China, everyone knows that speech. It's not American speech. It's a global, it is the most famous speech in human history. What's interesting mm -hmm. about it is it's relatively short. It's a speech of just over 1600 words, but he repeats the word uh, I have a dream 
or let freedom ring approximately every 85 words. And that repetition of this monolithic thing that you can instantly understand, it has the same effect as a warning label. It, it locks your attention. And then when he repeats it, it keeps you there, right? You go, let's go 23 years earlier to June 4th, 1940, uh, 40? Uh, when was the, God, my, my 40, four, I have my dates wrong. I have jet lag, but the, uh, the famous we shall fight speech where um, uh, Winston Churchill went before Congress, no, went before Congress, went before the House of Commons. Sorry, to, I, if I offended anybody in England, I apologize, okay? <laughs> and gave his speech, which is now known as the We Shall Fight speech, which he repeats the word. And it was then later aired on the BBC that night in London where the British were losing heart. To, they didn't have the resolve uh, to finish the war. They were feeling beat up. And he uses the word, we shall fight over and over. We shall fight in the beaches. We shall fight in the streets. We yes. shall never, you know, we shall fight in the landing grounds. We shall fight, right? It's now known as the we shall fight speech, but it's that repetitive phrase. It's the closer. Yes. So these, these block repetitive phrases that people can anchor to, they can do a lot more than sell things. They, yeah. can, call, they can motivate people to do remarkable things, right? So that mechanism, and I would say that the most famous speech in human history is I have a dream. And it's the most famous speech of the 20th century. The second most famous speech of the 20th century um, is the we shall fight speech. And it's because they both use blocks, mm -hmm. one for peace, one for war. They Okay. I mean, and I, I, I always give the example of Nelson Mandela uh, gave a lot of speeches in free to nation, but he didn't use blocks and we're all the lesser for it. Mm -hmm. When we use these block repetitive statements, they, they sear into us, they cut through all the noise around you and they stay with you and you can use it and you can deploy it and make anything iconic in a single person or any group of people that you desire if you use the tools that I explain in the icons. So that makes, that makes a huge amount of sense. When we look at social media, we are, we're awash with influencers and brands that are using some form of repetition or block approach and some are very clumsy attempts some are perhaps more successful, but to me, there feels a little bit of an irony that all of these collectively add to the noise. So what happens when the volume of blocks themselves mean that they become the noise that they're designed to cut through? Oh God, you are tough. You're like calling me out, Mr. Spires. You're asking me, the <laughs> that's a tough question. Uh, all right, you have to look at it like this, okay? How do you make a block? Okay, and again, I'm not. You, there's a block in, in music. There's a block in a, in a painting. Like I could teach you to use a block as a painter. I could teach you to use a block as a musician. Right now, let's we're just talking about business or you you as a human. Okay, or getting a job or something. Okay, so you have to look at it like this. There's always an intersect point between the best of what you do and have to offer, yep. and what someone needs emotionally. When you can find that intersect, that's your block. Okay, so you have to imagine someone is driving. It doesn't matter if there's 80 billion blocks. We just gave the example of road signs. They always work. But, you have, but today, with all this information overload, you have to imagine you're driving down like a super information highway with thousands of lanes. And there's all these exit signs, right, of people trying to get you to come off at their exit. Okay. Um, if you present that intersect, uh, if you get it right and you and you repeat it enough, they will get off at your exit. They will see you. They're looking and they will get off at your exit. I can give a, a great story 
about that if you want. Yeah, Let's absolutely. humanize that. Yep. You know, it, back in uh, almost 100 years ago, to, in another very difficult time, um, it, during the heart of the Great Depression, there was a guy um, uh, named uh, Ted Houston. I write about him in the book. And Ted mm -hmm. had three things that he had a really simple plan for his life in the middle of the Great Depression. Uh, he wanted to attend Catholic Mass. He wanted to own his own pharmacy, he just finished pharmacy school, and he wanted to raise a family. That's all he cared about in life. And he actually had a, an inheritance, which was a lot of money back then. He had he inherited $3,000 in the middle of the Depression when he graduated pharmacy school. And he took every penny of that money and he moved to a tiny town in uh, South Dakota called Wall, population 387. Yep. And he, he spent every dime, bet it all on black, okay, with this pharmacy. And he quickly realized that the town was busted broke and no one, absolutely no one was coming into his pharmacy. And he saw his dream slipping away. Yeah. Uh, the town had one thing going for it. There was a Route 16A, the rural, you know, the interstate went right by the town. Just no one stopped in this tiny dust bowl, right? One day his wife, Dorothy, said, Ted, I have an idea. What is it that these people driving by in the, you know, the third, early 30s and their weathered jalopies before air conditioning is what it is now? What do they need more than anything? Mm -hmm. And um, she, he said, I just looked at her perplexed. She said, ice cold water. So they got, they developed this plan and they built this massive billboard and they hauled it out to the side of the interstate and they started to put, erect this billboard. And it said in massive, simple letters, like a warning label or a road sign, free ice water, wall drug. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, before they could even get the sign up, before they could even get back to the pharmacy, it was mobbed and it has stayed mobbed for almost the last 100 years. You could say it was the first viral campaign. During the war, allied forces would have distance to wall drug signs um, yep. at their stations in Europe. People would carry wall drug signs you know, to the pyramids and Taj Mahal and the, the, the top of the uh, Great Wall of China, right? And today, uh, wall drug is a, a multiplex of entertainment and and restaurants and and it's a national it's a it's a, well, a national it's a state landmark in south dakota yes. everyone knows about it right so what is your free ice water everyone has some and it doesn't matter how many people there are doing it if you get that statement right and you repeat it it is a magnet yeah yeah i'd like to come back to the point you made earlier around the expansion of the messages we receive each day from a thousand a few years back to 10 to 15,000 every day and you cite in the book the example of Sao Paulo the banned outdoor advertising to mm -hmm. cut down on the visual pollution that was created by thousands of out-of-home advertising boards um, and it was an example of what could be done figuratively and literally to cut down on that noise from constant advertising so broadening that message out a little bit or that discussion I wondered what you felt more principled leadership looked like in a world where we are consumed by so much information, ads and social media and so on. Where does the leadership come from to turn down the volume? And how realistic is it to expect those who produce the noise to be responsible for turning that volume down? 
I just, I mean, such a good question. And you're, you're asking me things that I think about sometimes, but I, I don't ever get to talk about, right? It really just comes down to being, am I allowed to swear? Yeah, absolutely. It, it really comes down to just being fucking real, okay? Right? Like you go on Twitter, 500 million people screaming at each other and no one's fucking listening. And you know it. Like, it's like, oh, I got to do what I got to do for the algorithm, right? You're not even putting out messages anymore because they mean something to you. You're chasing an algorithm, okay? You're fucked, okay? What people want more than ever is meaning. Mm. So where that comes in leadership is focus on your meaning. You know, it used to be before the internet, even just 25, 30 years ago, the kind of salesiness kind of worked. You could kind of try to predict what your customer wanted and then message something that kind of, offered that to them and that could work yeah. right even if it wasn't a totally refl a, a true reflection of your values or even the offering of your company that doesn't work anymore okay with with the internet we also have glass walls we can check any claim in a 30 second google search right so what people are looking for now is a feeling that you're being transparent the thing that is going to cause people that block that's going to cause people into your company. This is how a leader has to think. It has to be true. Yes. The same thing because the internet, if it's not true, everyone knows you're lying and it just becomes crap. So facing the fact that everyone can see you now and just going, okay, who are we? Do your identity DNA, figure out who you are in relation to the marketplace and tell the truth. Yeah. And, and in a way that, uh, that shows an understanding of the customer and that's the reality. That's the person that's going to get the business, not a person that's like, so, so the answer is meaning. That thing yeah. that drives customers now is also the thing that's going to inspire the people that work for you. That's the definition of transparency. That's what's changed, right? I, I hope I'm being clear. I can give you yep. some, some examples of that if you want. But. No, that, that's great. That's great. Um, you discuss limited options um, in your book and how they actually foster emotional positivity and connection and engagement and action and that all makes sense however we've got this kind of information paradox now where because of a result of algorithms on the internet giving us more of what we like or what we view or what we read and listen to we're creating echo chambers that effectively limit our options but promote confirmation bias and alienate ourselves and don't enable us to expand our thinking in the process so how do we expand our access points to knowledge and extend our understanding and promote our openness as individuals and as societies without being caught in that information overload at the same time? Again, you know, I've never had a conversation, you know, I quite talked about my work this way, but, you know, again, it really comes down, uh, Paul, to being fucking real. Yeah. You know, if you're going to the same news sources every day, if you're watching CNN, because that's your bent, or you're watching Fox because that's your bent. And I have no judgment. I'm not a political person. I, I don't have that luxury. Okay. Or if you're listening to NPR or the BBC, or you're going on Yahoo, or whatever those sources are, if you have these continual sources, they're tracking you if they're mm -hmm. on the internet. And if, and, and if they're not on the internet, they have a bias. So if you're, if you're in that routine, you're not connected to reality. That's what I'm talking about when I'm saying being fucking real. You know, one of my friends who's a, a differentiation expert, brilliant guy named Mark Levy, he asked me one day, 
uh, six months ago or something. He said, you know, Jamie, how people talk about my truth and your truth or my, you know, what do you think about that? I said, listen, it, it, there's reality. And how closely we track with reality determines how successful we are with it. There's one reality. There's not your reality and my reality. There's what's actually happening, right? So the answer to your question is, if you are not as a leader, consciously and actively um, pursuing different points of view, fostering and digging deep into the views that you actively disagree with, searching from every angle of things that you disagree with from multiple sources, you are not living in reality. You are living in a bubble and an echo chamber, and it's going to catch up to you and it's going to bite you in the ass. And how do you identify with radical simplicity, as you cite in the book, where the message is simplified to a point where it can break through, where that where the recipient sees this message around all of the noise and they can actually pick up on that message. How do you articulate that the depth of that message that they need to take in with a radically simple approach when there is so much other noise around that message that needs to break through? How do we strike the balance that enables a simple message to deliver deep meaning? Well, you have to look at it like, I, I give an example of the book of, you have to look at it like a, an arrow and, you know, with a full shaft and feathers at the end or something, right? Like, you know, the, the thing that causes someone to lock attention is that simple statement that corresponds to the need of the person you're trying to reach Yeah. The, with your best truth in relation to their need. That will always be your block. Okay. Um, a block will only momentary grab attention like a warning label. Then you have to follow up with something that has some substance to it. That is what I, so that's the shaft of the arrow. Yeah. Okay. And then you, you enter, that's what keeps them there. So you just go back and forth, you know, block statement that they care about substance block statement that they care about substance. And then it's a tractor beam. They can't go away and they'll only see you. And it doesn't matter what else is around you. It'll all fall away. They, they'll, they'll only see that it's that powerful. I've done it in every medium. I've taught it to painters. I, I teach at art schools. I just did a workshop to 400 uh, aspiring young writers at Georgetown University. Uh, I taught, you know, I do talk about this at business schools, Parsons, Pratt, you know, like I'm going around. So I'm talking about this in medium to medium. But that, yeah, you, it's, a, it's just a, that quiver of attention. Then you hit them with some substance. Then they want to know more. And then you give them the block again. Then they want to know more. And you just funnel them into that back and forth. Yeah. The substance, it will not be sustainable if you do not hit them with some substance immediately after you grab their attention. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You cite tech executive Linda Stone, um, who worked for both Microsoft and Apple in the 80s and 90s. And she coined the phrase, continuous partial attention to describe the constant volume of information we're subjected to, and as a result, pay less overall attention to. I wanted to get your view on what you think the aggregate effect of this will be on innovation, because curiosity is the heart of creativity, creativity is the heart of innovation, and the wider or the more information we have access to, the more possibility there is to spike the curiosity in the individual to grab onto that bit of information or take an interest in that. So do you think this excessive volume of information that we're paying less attention to overall 
will harm innovation in the medium term or improve innovation because we have more access to information, even if we don't dig deep into all of it? Um, well, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. Can you, I, so is will too much information, let me make sure I have the question correctly. And, and again, if I'm wrong, please correct me. Will too much information harm or, ex, or help innovation? Correct, yeah, because okay. we, we have more information to access and to be inspired by, but we also have more information to distract and pay less attention to. And I, I just wanted to get your feel on what the aggregate effect of all of that information might be to enhance well, innovation or to damage it. Well, I think it's a, it's a, it's a paradox, right? Um, what, what, what you're really looking at a, that's a really deep question because it's a really deep paradox. Okay. And the paradox is this, right? You have what's, what's good about all of this information. You have people that have, or everyone has these smartphones. I give statistics in the book. You could be at a village in Somalia where they don't have running water or toilets, but they have access to the internet. So what's good about all this is, is the democratization of information, an open society, right? When you, there is no Arab Spring without these smartphones. Mm -hmm. That was organized on Twitter and Facebook, right? So what you're seeing when you're seeing the Arab Spring is a good thing, the democratization of information. When people can share in real time what it, what it feels like to be under the yoke of tyranny, they'd rather die. Yes. That's what change, when, you, when they can share it in real time, okay? So there's a lot of good from this. Like me, as a curious person, I have access to anything that I get curious about instantly. Yeah. So because of that, we, I think, live in a society that would be hard to deny that this isn't the most innovative, uh, adoptive time in human history in terms of innovation, right? The kind of things that people are making in the world. And part of that is we all have access to this information and we can get it instantly. And we can, so we can move very quickly, right? So... And it, no one could say that it's not ultimately accelerating innovation. Uh, the other side, the paradox is this, right? Uh, there's a book that came out in 2004 by Barry Schwartz called The Paradox of Choice, where he talks about when you have too much choice, that there's actually psychological ramifications from that. Yes. Okay. We, when we have too much to choose from, we have anxiety about which one should I choose? We have anxiety. We have paralysis. We don't choose at all. Um, we have dissatisfaction. Oh, we bought one and then we wish we could, we should have got the ultimate one. And ultimately there's so much choice now we can become depressed about choice. Well, what I found in my work over the last 15 years, working with, um, iconic people based on these primal laws is that the, 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 us as human beings competing with all of this information for content has had the exact same psychological ramifications, ramifications as choice overload. Yes. When we, even no matter how, what's amazing about my life is that I, successful companies are hiring me because they feel like they're not being seen. Billion dollar companies are feeling invisible. I mean, that's crazy, right? But on the human level, what that CEO feels or even the person in the company when they're trying to get buy-in to do some innovation, they, don't, they feel invisible and they feel like they're not being heard. So when you feel like you have an idea, whether it's something you're trying to push out in the world or just trying to get buy-in from the, your team, you feel the same psychological ramifications that Schwartz uh, explained. You feel, when you feel like you have an idea and no one's going to listen, mm -hmm. you feel anxiety about being heard. 
Maybe you're not even going to try, so you're paralyzed. Why try if no one's going to hear me? You feel dissatisfied with your life, and ultimately you can be depressed. Yeah. Right. So that's the paradox: is we have the most innovative time in human history, but it's harder than ever to get anyone to give a shit. Yeah. 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 How does the iconist, as a methodology, as a principle, as a framework, as a format, how does it evolve? What does it look like in you know, nothing, nothing can ever stay still, even though you have primal laws or rules, nothing ever stays still. It has to grow. It has to organically move with the times or whatever it happens to be. What does the iconist look like as a concept in five years time? How has it evolved? God, you, Mr. Spires, you just continued. You're the, this is a tough interview, man. Like you're, <laughs> these are not softball questions. These are challenging questions. These are like, Dude, maybe you're full of shit. You don't really have all this stuff. No, I'm not. Out. I'm not <laughs> saying that for a moment. <laughs> no, no. Here's the, listen. Here, here's what it comes down to. Okay, I believe that my the laws that I came across. I, I hope that someday one of the things that happened when I wrote my book is that I thought ever you know the people are going to love this because it's true. I think I make a really good argument for the book. It's hard to disagree with, but I thought the people that are going to hate me are scientists. Scientists. Are gonna like because there's I'm not really using a scientific method. It's a Gladwell book, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And what's been shocking in the last two years is how often I hear from scientists and how much praise I hear from scientists. Awesome. In fact, I just signed a book, my new book, which I'm starting to write with the Einstein and modern anesthesiology, one of the most important medical doctors in the United States, who everyone uh, is going to be hearing about in the next two years. He's going to win the Nobel Prize. Uh, and I'm writing a book with him. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So the answer, so the answer to that is a couple of things. I believe that this is based on evolutionary biology and these laws never change and they will always work. Yeah. And also, if you go look at Mandelbrot's work, fractals, and you look at patterns in, in the building of the natural world, you'll see these blocks everywhere. They're everything, plants, trees, all follow these patterns. Yeah. So I believe that they're so hard, hardwired into us that uh, they are, it's like saying, what happens to our skin when the world evolves? Yeah. And the answer is, uh, well, we're still going to have skin. But if we have so much information overload, if we go so wall-y, it's, kind of like, it's kind of like climate change, if you believe in it. I'm not this is not a political show, but say the world is warming, forget about who's causing it or not. If it continues to warm, this is the simplicity of, of the answer. It will burn our skin. People talk about how the, you know, but they talk about the environment. The environment's going to be fine. It's, it, we're going to go. It's going to shake us off like fleas and then regenerate. This is not an environment problem. This is, a, they should call it global people killer, not climate change. Okay, because the environment's not going anywhere. It's us that are going somewhere. So it will burn us alive and it will burn us off the planet. Doesn't matter what we think is causing it. We know it's warming. Okay, so the same thing with information overload. These primal laws, how we take in information, this is how we're, we are hardwired to take in information with a big monolithic anchor. Yes. If we don't have an anchor, there's studies that show this. Uh, that's not going to change, but what can change is that what's it's already happening there's 500 million lunatics on twitter all screaming shit and nobody gives a shit what they're saying and they keep doing it yeah right and they make it like what do you what's your social media plan 
And they, if they don't have 50,000 followers, you know, uh, they're not visible. But are they really generating business from it? Are they really saying something meaningful? Or are they saying something because they know they have to post every day to be in the algorithm? They're already, it's already happening, Paul. It's already searing us. Yeah. And we keep doing, and the band plays on. It's a joke. I mean, I, I mean, that's a brutal thing to say. Yep. And listen, I don't know if it's the Kiwi in you, but you're bringing out your, these challenging questions. <laughs> you're bring, I'm swearing. You're, you've, got, you've got me all worked up. What is the most important principle you would like readers of The Iconist to take away from reading your book? The, all, the, the most important principle is that everything, this is about people. Mm -hmm. existence is about people existence is about our own humanity existence is about our meaning you know Forbes Ignite um I'm the resident iconist and writer at Forbes Ignite they had asked me to do a video on my definition of wealth mm -hmm. okay and typically when we look at wealth we think of net worth all the things you own your portfolio, your house, right? That's not your worth. That's your net assets. That has nothing to do, zero to do with your worth. It's a misnomer. The only thing that gives you worth is your meaning, why you do what you do, and your personal relationships and the quality of those. So what I would like people to take away from my book, I'm trying to give people away to be heard again. Yes. So my meaning is to give you, Paul, and everybody else out listening to the show, the ability to have their meaning heard. So I, my book is about you, and it's about everyone else that reads it. Their ability to express their meaning and have some, everyone they want to answer, whether it's one person, five people on their team, or a million people. I want them to be able to get heard every time with... Um, deliberately not hope luck or chance yes i want them to know okay so i want to give people their meaning back the ability to communicate their meaning and i want to put people i want people to be able to communicate to each other and this allows people to uh uh this 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 allows people to uh get people to listen to them even when they become numb to communication so when people are talking to each other uh, that's the best part of the human condition, right? So people, I want people to know more than anything that people are what's important. The people around you are what's important. The people you're solving problems and doing things for are important and meaning is important and everything else is just, it, it's, those are, the, those are the things that matter. Do you think in providing something for everyone else to be heard that you are giving back to that nine-year-old boy who wasn't heard? Do you think that's the, the completing of the circle for you, that now you are able to, to look back at your nine-year-old self and say, I'm giving others a voice for the voice you never had at the time? Well, this is getting very Oprah. You're trying to get me to cry. But <laughs> I, I'm, like I, I, I might start crying if you keep, continue on this line. Um, you know, it's funny that you say that. There's an Englishman who lives in uh, Canada, in Vancouver, BC, named Dove Barron. He's a very, he's a close friend of mine. Uh, and I always say to him, 
Dov, you know, I find it so ironic that this invisible discarded person that was thrown away like a piece of used toilet paper now tells the smartest people uh, and most successful artists and businesses in the world how to stand out. It's so ironic. And Dove always says, Jamie, no, it's the opposite of ironic. Mm. And, you know, and I, I guess, you know, the, you know, when you go through something like that, where you should be dead, you know, this is, we met on a podcast where I, I was asked tough questions about that were personal, which is unusual. I thought this was going to be more of a business interview, right? You and me right now. Uh, but uh, when you go through something like that, where you should be dead over and over and over, the, the physical things, the mental things of being abandoned at birth, you know, the physical issues, the near-death experiences, the medical emergencies, you know, the, 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 when you go through something that should have killed you over and over, and then you make it, and most of the people that, that, you, that you come along with, they don't make it. And people always think it's in your past because they see you as this shining, bright person and they think it's in your past. It's not. All the people that I've lost or the people that I've carried with me that I, my brothers, homeless in New York, you know, that's my present. Yeah. I don't, it's not in my past, right? So when you go through something like that, inevitably you have an existential moment. You know, and I think that existential moment probably started when I was about 12, but you know, and it's had its various shifts. But the existential question is, if, if, if the forces of evil or choices that people make, or, or what happened to me, are, um, uh, if that could happen to somebody, right? Why would you, you know, you either give up, or you continue? Why would you even try? What, what's the point? Why would someone want to do so? Why, like, it's a, such a powerful existential question. Why would somebody do that to a child, right? And, um, and then why would I be the one to make it through it? That's the existential question. Why would I make it through it? What, is, what am I supposed to do that I'm the one in a million, one in a million that made it through? What is, what is the universe... God, whatever, trying to tell me that what is that? What is the point of that? Because all those other people are still suffering. Why would somebody get tried through a gauntlet like that, where they should have really been sliced to the point where they're no longer there? But you're sitting there at the end and you're there. So why? And the answer is to deepen your empathy. Yes. To make your empathy so deep that there that you can see and help others in a way that no one else can. That's the job as the person that made it through that experience. The only way that I can get up in the morning and look at what happened to that nine-year-old boy and not vomit is to say he survived it so he could have a deeper, deeper empathy for others. And I live my life saying, what am I supposed to use that empathy for today? What, it, what is it that I can see because of how much pain I've endured that no one else can, that I need to apply towards helping the world today? And how can I make a lot of money doing it? <laughs> but it yeah. But that is exactly why you are appointed by the CEOs of billion dollar companies, because you bring a perspective that is rooted in deep empathy that many other people just simply can't bring because of your life experience. That is what you... That is what you deliver. 
Yeah, and I want to say that, you know, I'm not altruistic. You know, I, I, I live meaning first. Yes. But I also um, live abundance. Yes. And I treat myself well. You yeah. know, like, you know, a, a big part of escaping poverty is poverty mindset. You have to love yourself. Yeah. And, and so I'm not altruistic. I do things for my own personal gain as well. It's just, and, and, I, and I do it in abundance. It's just secondary. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie, we always end the show with guests offering listeners one or two key tips of pieces of advice for them to go away and apply in their business. When we think about the iconist, what would those pieces of advice be from your perspective? My, perspe I, my perspective would be that before you push out any message into the world, you need to figure out your identity DNA. Who are you? There's a chasm uh, between branding, which is your story, and marketing. And most companies fall into this chasm, right? They do the marketing part, which is the, where you push out. The branding part, branding just means your story, which is the identity part, Yes. okay? Most people do those things without truly understanding their, the identity of themselves or their company. And so their efforts to generate demand uh, don't work very well because they don't know who they are. Yeah. Figure out who you are and figure out who you are in relation to companies exist to solve problems. So what problem, so you're solving a problem. So what is it about the way you're solving that problem that your identity DNA that most corresponds to the emotional need of those that you're trying to, to convince that you're the one? Yeah. That starts though with you taking a look at yourself. Jamie, it's been an absolute pleasure today. Thank you so much for your time on the new PL. I, I, this was extraordinary. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. If you like what you've just heard in our chat with Jamie and would like to purchase his brilliant book, The Iconist, just go to the notes that accompany this podcast and click on the links to order. And you can also learn more about Jamie and the work he does at theiconist.org. And again, the link will be in the notes that accompany the podcast. If you've enjoyed today's discussion, please do take a moment to rate us or review us. We genuinely appreciate it. And once again, thank you to the sponsors of the new PL Monthly Business Book Review Club, the Carroll Consultancy. Please check out carrollconsultancy.com if you want to accelerate your business growth in 2021. And if you'd like to subscribe to the new PL and keep up to date with all our latest news and join our movement for more principles and leadership in business, just go to principlesandleadership.com and subscribe. So finally, I'm Paul host of the new PNL. Thank you once again for listening and have a great day.